Welcome to Making Peace Visible, the podcast about how the media covers peace and conflict. I'm your host, Jamil Simon. Every so often on our show, someone brings up the question of journalistic bias. And I, for one, think some bias in journalism can be a good thing. Reza Saya, who reports from Iran for the PBS NewsHour in France 24, says he has a bias towards peace. Zena Erheim, a Syrian journalist and communications trainer in the UK, says she has a bias towards human rights. My guest this episode is Deborah Douglas, an award-winning American journalist and educator known for her work reporting on race relations and racial justice. Deborah believes being a journalist comes with a bias towards democracy, and she says that journalism has a role to play in advancing racial justice. In her current role, Deborah Douglas directs the Midwest Solutions Journalism Hub at Northwestern University. In Deborah's words, Solutions Journalism is a deep invitation to slow the storytelling down and excavate how things are working. I found speaking with Deborah to be inspiring and thought-provoking, even at a time when it feels like we're turning back the clock on minority rights in America. Well, Deborah, I'm pleased to say that I spent a lot of time this weekend learning about you and your work, and it's been a fascinating journey. It's almost as though you began preparing for the work you're doing now from the age of eight, which I understand is when you decided to become a journalist. That was prescient, and I think the world is a better place because you became a journalist. Thank you so much. You experienced the Great Migration up close and personal by going back and forth from Chicago and Detroit down to Memphis and Jackson on long trips in cars and buses to visit family. That experience prepared you to do a lot of things, and one of them was to write the guidebook to the Civil Rights Trail. How did being in all these different places from a young age shape your worldview? Oh, it gave me a sense that I was called to do something. Like there were historical figures, but also adults in my own world who had done something. I couldn't quite figure it out, but to make it so that I could be able to dream and have a vision for my life to pursue excellence. And so I just always thought I was supposed to do something important and something useful, some activity, you know, I would spend a lifetime figuring out what that was, some activity that was meant for me to execute. You certainly did achieve that. I mean, uh, the amount of work you've done is, is impressive. You've been an important part of a movement over the past 10 years to begin a deeper inquiry into history of race in America, one that's, in my opinion, long overdue. At the same time, there's a movement to deny our racial history. As someone who's been learning about the rich history of Black people in America since you were young, it must be terribly sad to see what's going on regarding the teaching of race. What do you think Americans are losing by denying a key component of our history? It's actually quite frightening. And the idea that you can have people standing right in front of you, people who created the culture that we all live in, and you deny the the beauty of that um, and just just the the privilege of being able to access and enjoy that culture. It's just a frightening thing. And I'm actually struggling right now, to be honest, Jamil. Yeah, tell us. I try to, you know, keep my eye on the goal. 
um, knowing that significant shifts throughout history that have made it so that marginalized people can enjoy more freedoms and and uh, access enfranchisement happens along a through line. And there are ebbs and flows in terms of the ability of progressive policies and laws and norms to take hold. Generally, that's how I look at it as a legacy exercise, that these things take time. But right now, just living in this moment, looking at so many of our hard-fought laws fall into destruction, it's just really hard to take. It's just like one blow after the other when you consider affirmative action and the attack on LBGTQ rights and voting and, you know, and now they're coming for the women. <laughs> right. Uh, um, I'm just, I feel a little bit like I'm on the ropes right now and not by myself. I'm on the ropes um, with all progressive minded people, but on the ropes and just getting beat a little bit. And I'm looking for that, that second win so I can stand up and, and breathe and fight again. You're certainly not alone in that. The practice of journalism happens in the present moment. I mean, I don't have to tell you that. The news, it's about what's new. But when, you, when you're covering issues of equity around race, it's important to learn about the past to better understand what's going on in the present. Do you have a philosophy about including history in your journalism? Yeah, well, the fact is there is nothing new under the sun. And I think that when your reporting is devoid of context, that then it ends up being superficial coverage. Mm. And and right now we're in a, a in a context where a lot of coverage is really superficial for a lot of reasons. Um, namely, you know, the media is just really uh, been hard hit by failing financial models. Um, you know, the presence of hedge funds who are buying up uh, media properties and then picking them for parts and leaving newsrooms decimated in terms of reporting and professional staff. We have the situation of news deserts when people lack access to credible information. Terrible things can happen. Misinformation and disinformation can fill that gap. In my current role, I'm the director of the newly created Medill Midwest Solutions Journalism Hub. Mm-hmm. Right. Journalism is a rigorous approach to covering pressing social problems. And it's a really great way to cover marginalized communities. And for me, is the missing piece of the inclusion puzzle. It, it, it involves covering the response to a pressing social problem, gathering evidence of that, the response, how it's working, um, including insights about how that, that, that response application is working and covering the limitations. In journalism, we, we have a rubric called who, what, when, where, how, and why. And a lot of times uh, we do all of those bits except for the how. Um, <laughs> by the time you get to how, you just don't have enough airtime or space on the page. And so this is a deep invitation to slow the storytelling down, to excavate the how things are working. And a lot of research by the Solutions Journalism Network shows that when you show the how, people understand uh, systems better, processes better, their relationship to those systems and processes. And because you're not just problematizing something, but showing a potential uh, solution or a potential answer to a slice of a, a systemic problem, it makes them feel 
um, it gives them more hope and dignity. Right. Um, you're not just bringing them just another problem. A lot of journalists pride themselves on, oh, here's something wrong and here's something wrong. And we got to hold this per- person accountable. You know, the slam dunks on catching all the bad people doing all the bad things. But really, to me, the the invitation to journalism in this moment is to look at things through the lens of systems and how they're impacting us. And so journalism gives us a way into those systems to understand how they work for some and don't work for others, but they can. You're a founder of MLK50, uh, which is a news website with the tagline, Justice Through Journalism. And our project, War Stories, Peace Stories, and this podcast are focused on building awareness of peace through journalism. We have something in common in creating these initiatives. Moreover, peace and justice have something in common as they both have an abstract quality that makes them a challenge to write about. You know, can you talk a bit about how you see the role of journalism in advancing racial justice? I think that, first of all, journalists or the press is the only profession mentioned in the Constitution. So that should tell you something about how important it is. And I think that um, because we are a critical part of the American project, that um, if you don't include an analysis of race, uh, of how race functions in this society, then you're not really fully engaging with the promise of the American project. Um, as we all know, race is central to how this country came to be and what it what it's come to be at every step of the way and the good and the bad. And so if you're not um, if you don't have a race analysis as part of your journalism, then you're not doing it right. And and the fact of the matter is that a lot of individuals, a lot of people, especially professional journalists, are not equipped for that for that analysis, but we got to get it quick, quick, fast, and in a hurry. Why do you think that's true? Um, what, white supremacy. <laughs> <laughs> that's one reason. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and hubris. People think that if you talk about race, that you're talking that you're talking about another group of people. Um, and when it comes to whiteness, you know, whiteness is is a thing and it functions in a certain kind of way in this society. And it doesn't mean that you as a white person have to agree that you're a bad person. We're talking about a function of a systemic thing in our society and that we we're duty bound to excavate it in that way. And then some people, you know, would like to regard whiteness as a sort of default, a default way to be in the world, a default way to, um, to aspire in the world, as opposed to including all the people and all the kinds of experiences and all the all the different ways that we fall on fault lines of identity in this society. Well, you know, there's some people, news consumers, and maybe even fellow journalists who bristle at the idea of journalism as advancing racial justice. I mean, they might say, what you're doing is activism, and there should be a clear line between activism and journalism. What's your opinion on that? And what do you tell your students? Well, the one thing that the one embedded bias that we definitely have when we get up every day to, to cover the news anew is that we're biased for democracy. 
So you just let's let's just admit that. <laughs> so if you're biased for democracy, then you're you have to be in bias for racial justice because racial justice is, is embedded in the democratic promise. Another important thing you, in terms of the work you've been doing, you were also the editor in chief of the Emancipator which is a platform that uses evidence-based opinion and ideas in journalism to hasten racial justice. Tell us about The Emancipator and how you started it. Yeah, so um, I'm not at The Emancipator anymore, but yes, I am a co-founding editor-in-chief with Amber Payne of uh, The Emancipator, and I now uh, serve on the advisory board. And um, the idea was, I guess, created or excavated by... Uh, Ibram X. Kendi, who is the, the founding director of the Center for Anti-Racist Research at Boston University, and Bina Van Contraman, who was then the opinion editor at the Boston Globe. You know, in 2020, you know, we had some moments where people were looking around, trying to figure out how can we capture the energy and the momentum to do something about these instances of deep racial injustice vis-a-vis George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and so many things that happened, disparate impacts from the coronavirus, uh, do something in a large way to advance advance the conversation. And so they came up with this idea to create an evidence-based, scholarly-driven uh, platform to elevate solutions to the problem of racial injustice and its intersections, because it doesn't just live alone. You know, there's ableism... There's xenophobia, misogyny, um, LGBTQ, you know, so many things. It's a long list. And so um, Amber and I came on board to build bones onto that. And we were able to create what I think is just a beautiful platform that actually hosts a very inclusive conversation about how we can pursue these solutions to systemic injustice together. So in a way, its goals are um, sort of in in sync a little bit with the work you're doing in solutions journalism. Absolutely. And Emancipator practices solutions journalism now, and we did when I was there. We just spent the last several months covering health equity. We had a health equity grant from the Solutions Journalism Network. We produced some commentary and videos about maternal health actually uh, breastfeeding access for marginalized women. Um, We produced two health equity tours, one in the Little Village community of Chicago. It's a large Latino community in Chicago. And we went to the historic Haytai community in Durham, North Carolina. We centered community voices showing how they could be agents of their own salvation in the face of um, overarching systemic issues that challenged the ability to be fully healthy Looking at the other side, a common complaint about journalists is that they come into communities they're not part of, get the story they were looking for, and leave. Do you think there's something extractive about the way journalism is sometimes practiced? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it's so funny that you should mention that, because with our health equity tours, we actually uh, hired local tour guides as field producers for those videos, we didn't want to show up in those communities like vampires. Right. You did. We wanted to do the opposite. Yeah, we wanted to be invited in. And so we did research. We did our own reporting because we're seasoned journalists. But we also work with the field producers to 
uh, work our way to uh, community members and thought leaders in the community who could really help us uncover the nuances of the health equity situation in those communities. A lot of times you'll, you'll hear people in communities around the country say, oh, you know, oh, this national TV show came to town and they talked to these people and these people. Those are the wrong people to talk to because this guy over here, or this woman over here, they've been working on that for years. Mm-hmm. Right. We didn't want to be those people. And so there <laughs> is a way that you can avoid extraction um, in the way that you plan and um, you know, there's media operates on different levels, extremely local to, you know, globally or nationally. And um, I think there's a way that you can listen to communities, just be in a constant state of listening, doing check-ins and meeting new people so that when you do have to show up someplace, you're showing up invited and not just showing up in that extractive way. And, but th- that that all said, when something goes down, you got to get in there and you got to tell the story. Right, right. Well, what can be done to create a more respectful relationship between mainstream news organizations and underreported, underrepresented communities? Well, I, yeah, I think you're surfacing the fact that there's not a lot of trust in media these days. Mm-hmm, right. um, for the most part, a lot of people don't trust national media. They have a little more trust in local media. And there's a Gallup poll in that uh, that monitors trust in mass media. And for the first time in, in all the decades they've been doing this poll, they found that the number of people, percentage of people who distrust mass media is greater than a number of people who trusted a great deal. So that's disturbing. And in terms of what can be done to engender trust, I mean, one thing that we can do is, um, is to... Well, again, to show up and and listen when you don't actually need something from the community. So community engagement is really important. Um, You know, a lot of that spade work that we would do back in the the glory days when we had more resources. um, You know, we need to we need to come back to that. But also we need to deconstruct that process. We need to show our work to the audiences that we cover more more often than not. Sometimes outlets show some of the work. I can think of instances where the New York Times published a story about why they made the decisions that they did or covered something the way they covered of smaller outlets that have done that. That needs to be a, a regular part of our practice to show how we actually get our work done and why we made the decisions that we made and why we uh, use the sources that we used because media literacy is at an all-time low. <laughs> and um, we need to be working on literacy of, about the media and the, and the, just the civic project while we're doing our journalism, which is a lot of work to do. I mean, it is. No, like, it is. And, and overworked, but we need to do it. And on top of it, there's also, um, we're all battling the algorithms of the uh, social media networks that uh, promote divisiveness, that promote anger and distrust among different groups of people. Well, also, though, I think that, you know, because misinformation and disinformation can thrive on social media, that, that means that that credible media needs to take up more space in those, in those platforms. And so instead of just posting links 
you know, a lot of the journalism needs to be out there. And that's one decision that Amber and I made um, when we uh, launched The Emancipator is that we wanted to tell complete stories. So if you never went to the site, you were still educated and they're continuing to do that to this day. Um, I talked to a lot of new CEOs and executive editors who go, I'm not that into social media, but we have a person. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, you know, if you if you're really stuck in your orthodoxy and you really believe your ego believes that people should continue to come to you, then we're gonna continue to have problems. You gotta go to where the people are. And I'm not saying they're all on social media, but they're on there in in a in a, a sustained way that we need to really be taking up more space. Many of our guests on Making Peace Visible, including some of your colleagues at Solutions Journalism Network, are concerned over worsening political polarization in the United States, polarization that sometimes leads to violence, like on January 6th. Many of the most divisive issues in this country are questions of justice, equity, and race, like debates over policing or how American history should be taught in schools. I'd love you get your take on the issues of polarization and how it plays out. Oh, I mean, that's such, that's such a broad question. Okay, so first of all, I wrote the first ever civil rights trail guide to follow the official civil rights trail in the South. So of course, I'm all about people um, ensconcing themselves in our origin story so we can understand our current context and understand where we're going. I mean, I'm not quite sure to say, you know, anything beyond that. It's just that we should always be regarding the complete history of this country and providing that context in all of our stories and really any kind of story that we tell beyond news, because all of us are walking around every day in storytelling mode. Yeah. I mean, the polarization has been so destructive. I mean, America's almost been paralyzed by it. Do you think there's anything we can learn from it? Is, could there possibly be an upside to this uh, horror show? I, I just can refer back to the, the idea that this is a legacy exercise and that it's really terrible right now and to believe that it won't be terrible in the future and that we all have a job to do in our areas of expertise. And I'm doing what I can in my area of expertise as a journalist and helping us render authentic narratives and center all of us in stories and not establish power. I don't have an answer to what's going to happen. Like I said, I'm really struggling right now. <laughs> yeah. I'm really kind of I'm really kind of angry right now, but um I'm just trying to like let let it burn off <laughs> so I can get that second win and and operate from a sense of possibility. I do think that a kind of creative friction can happen when things are are awry in this sort of way, that there can be an opening uh, for some sort of transformation to occur. And I'm always looking for that little glimmer of light that I can um, work my way to and through. And that's all I can say right now. Well, you know, it, what what you're saying now reminds me very much of, well, I, I want to say I loved your talk that you gave in Mississippi at the museum the uh, lunch and his lunches history talk, and in your talk, a black man asked you if there was any true safe spaces for black people in America, and I loved your answer. You said you don't believe in safe spaces; you believe in brave spaces. 
And I thought that was wonderful. Can you tell us a little more about that idea? Do you regard journalism as a brave space? Oh, it's definitely a brave space, and it's not at all a safe space. And I really don't believe in safe spaces because if you if it's if you're really only calibrating for safety, then you're not getting to truth and transparency and authenticity. And we can't work our way to the other side of problematic issues. Um, I think that a lot of the the massive temper tantrum that we're experiencing right now in this country, like that mother's group that keeps going around trying to get so-called critical race theory out of schools and all of that, <laughs> you know, that's all centered around their discomfort around um, being held accountable in any sort of way. And so that our default can't be to have complete safety. I mean, we should have safety from violence, you know, things like that. But of course, but I'm, I'm talking about like in, in the, in the idea and dialogue space, we need to be able to uh, foster difficult dialogues so that we can deconstruct, you know, our systems and challenges and then reconstruct them in a way that works for everyone. And that should be, you know, that should be the goal. And it's so funny that you asked that question because I wrote a piece about this several years ago for Columbia Journalism Review huh. called No Media Safe Space because there was something <laughs> going on at campus and they wanted they didn't want the journalism students covering the student protesters because it was supposed to be a safe space. I'm like, down to my bones, I just don't believe that. <laughs> right. No, and you certainly you certainly have practiced that in your in your career. It's just been amazing to you know when you look at the the totality of the work you've done um you certainly have not been looking for a safe space between the emancipator and mlk 50 um Mm -hmm. you know these are brave spaces i think and it's uh wonderful what you've been doing the work yeah i would not allow people to ask me to gaslight myself (laughs) And to um, to to suggest to me that I must accept some sort of oppression or repression um, because it's good for all of us. And I don't think I should ask that of the communities that I serve. No, I don't think you should. But it goes on every day. It sure does. You should accept less money. You should accept less than a living wage because it's good for the capitalists who created the job, even though they don't do any of the job to actually make the thing the thing. <laughs> right. It's been wonderful talking to you. And I'm just wondering if there's anything I didn't ask that you think is important to say regarding uh, journalism and justice journalism and peace journalism and racism. Well, I'm a student of my craft and I too am working to get better and better at this every day. I'm actually in a complicating the narratives fellowship with Solutions Journalism Network right now. And we're going to be um, learning methods developed by Amanda Ripley, who is the founder of Good Conflict on uh, facilitating difficult dialogues, cutting through that tension and engendering trust. So this is really, you know, just a, a practice and you never, you know, reach a pinnacle and get everything perfect. You have to keep working in it and keep working at it. And, and that's what I'm committed to doing right now. Well, we are too, and we share your commitment to uh, bringing these stories out. And I want to thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Jamil. I really appreciate you. 
You can follow David Douglas on Twitter and Instagram at DebOfficially, one word. And you can find links to Deborah's work, including her guidebook to the U.S. Civil Rights Trail, in the show notes. If you, like me, were blown away by Deborah's insights and talent, why not share this episode with a friend? We've got a link in the show notes that you can copy and paste. This episode was produced by Andrew Moraskin, Peter Agus is the creative director of the War Stories, Peace Stories project, and Faith McClure keeps the gears turning. And I'm Jamil Simon. Thanks so much for listening, and talk soon.